Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm recording this from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonization is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children, and lives. I want to acknowledge that despite ongoing colonization, 60,000 years of wisdom continues, and so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. Today I speak with Deborah Glass, Victoria's Ombudsman. The Victorian Ombudsman has led the way in promoting human rights across the state. Recent investigations into the treatment of public housing residents during the lockdown, the solitary confinement of young people in youth detention, and the treatment of women in the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre all reveal human rights issues at their core. They also reveal the importance of urgent and effective implementation of the optional protocol against torture in Victoria. In this episode, we examine how the Ombudsman believes human rights should guide government decision-making and the Victorian Ombudsman's role in supporting or examining that. Now, of the 25 episodes in this podcast, this was the first in-person interview. So I hope you enjoy it, as did I. So please subscribe, rate the podcast. We're available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, or anywhere else you can find your reputable regulation podcasts. And as you know, uh, the, the first question uh, of this podcast is, why does regulation matter to you and to your community? Good regulation really is nothing more nor less than a codification of community expectations. You know, what what's right and what's not right. Yeah. So regulation really is about saying, this is what we as a community expect of you as a as an entity, you know, whether that's a government entity or a private sector entity, like you know, a bank, mm-hmm. it's about behavior you know, sort of what, you know, what is good behaviour? Yeah. So for me, it's, 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 it's nothing more or less than that. Yeah. So if I look at it in, in, a, in a public sector context, or to bring human rights into it, for example, uh, human rights is a kind of a codified framework for how you balance community expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually a really useful framework for, for government to, uh, to adopt it. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of um, when you say that, and something that's come through um, from a lot of people we've spoken to is it's kind of a bit of the social contract, um, yeah. you know, in some way, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Well, that's that's what good regulation is. So yeah. people obviously kick out against bad regulation, yeah. and rightly so, you know, yeah. where, because it, it, it you know that doesn't support that social contract. It doesn't. Mm. It, it's not a codification of of, of uh, people's expectations of how. A, uh, an agency or a bank or a whatever entity we're talking about, public or private, should behave mm. towards themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I'll add that it's so nice to be interviewing you here in the office. 
um, today, Deborah, and I'm hearing the, the trams go past. Um, it's a nice sound that we haven't had in this podcast before. No, indeed. Well, the, the sound of traffic. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so we are, we are here in, uh, 570, 570 Burke, um, and, and we're at the office of the Victorian Ombudsman. So how would you, how would you describe your role here in Victoria? I'm a constitutionally independent officer of the Victorian Parliament. Uh, I'm one of three constitutionally independent officers, uh, but my specific role is dealing with complaints about public sector agencies, and that's a very broad jurisdiction. You know, over a thousand agencies in my jurisdiction, uh, anything effectively to do with state and local government, with the exception of the, the police mm. uh, and decisions of the courts. Uh, so it is very broad, uh, and and I have um, I, I, so I deal with complaints. I deal with whistleblower type mm-hmm. matters. Uh, I have a, a number of functions around um, uh, in, in, uh, in, in human rights, for example, as mm-hmm. well. I'm Victoria's human rights investigator. Mm-hmm. So if there are complaints involving human rights, that's very much for me. Uh, and I have a jurisdiction that, that broadly extends um, across the, the public sector. So it's a pretty big and complicated job. It is a very big and complicated job, and and when I look at your um, your website and the 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 breadth, but also the depth of the investigations that you undertake, um, it is a it is enormous. And, and I don't think we necessarily understand um, how good public administration, but then also human rights, applies to so many different contexts. We might touch on it a bit later, but um, you know, I I know that. Um, the, the work you've done in prison settings and in closed environments is um, crucial. And uh, the episode last week, we spoke to two women who um, have just exited prison. And so um, the kinds of investigations that you're doing in there to protect the rights of people in those settings is, is crucial. But I guess one of the challenges, and correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but one of the challenges in this space would be that you, you do have limited enforcement powers Certainly compared to, from my understanding, you know, like a, um, I used to work at the Mental Health Compliance Commissioner upstairs, uh, where you can issue compliance notices and whatnot to, to comply with the law. So, uh, firstly, is that accurate in your mind that um, enforcement, uh, you have, you know, comparatively less enforcement measures? But then secondly, if so, how do you go about influencing and getting those outcomes that you want? Well, that's a really good question. And first of all, I don't see that as a limitation. Bear in mind that, that I have the powers of a Royal Commission mm. uh, with, you know, frankly, the enforceability of a Royal Commission, which is none. Mm. But, 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 but if you look at the enforceability around the way Royal Commissions and Ombudsman operate, mm. it is in the persuasive powers of the role. Yeah. And they are actually much more effective, in my view, mm. than a, a issuing a compliance notice, mm. for example. So, I mean, if we go back for a moment to what it is I'm trying to achieve in this role, it is about a fairer place. It is about making Victoria a fairer place, you know, through uh, improving public administration, ensuring that public agencies are taking into account principles of fairness, when they exercise discretion, for example, that they're taking into account human rights when they're making decisions. All of these things are about contributing to making Victoria a fairer place. And I want to, ideally, I want to do that by taking those agencies with me on that journey. I, I want them to see the 
the reason. I want them to understand why it's in their interests, why it's in the public interest mm. to, to make the decisions they do. Yeah. So that isn't about, you know, sort of slapping an enforcement notice on somebody. It is actually about uh, ensuring that you can convince mm. uh, the, those agencies that it's in their interests to use a human rights framework. It's in their interests to mm. deliver a, a, a fairer service. And the the most persuasive power I think I have, which I think is incredibly persuasive, is my ability to table reports in Parliament mm-hmm. directly. And I don't, I don't, have to, I don't table through a minister. I don't port to somebody in, mm-hmm. in government. If I decide to investigate something, whatever that is, and I can decide that nobody tells me other than Parliament mm-hmm. uh, what to investigate. Nobody tells me how to investigate it, and nobody tells me what my findings should be. So, you know, yeah. I am you know, that independent officer of Parliament with that degree of freedom to operate mm. and to put out my findings, whether people like them or not, is, is, is not the question, you know, without fear or favour. Yeah. In a way that I, I think can be really persuasive. So I am... I see as part of the the art of the ombudsman, mm. and that's true of ombudsman everywhere. You know, mm. we we don't have, and we shouldn't have, powers of enforcement, mm. because the kinds of things we recommend are could well be changes to major changes to public policy. They could be law reform. They could involve significant amounts of public money. Now, you know, I'm not responsible for the state budget. I'm not responsible for for government policy. Mm. So it wouldn't be right mm. for recommendations I make to be enforceable. Mm. But what I want them to be is persuasive. Mm. And I imagine, although uh, you're strenuously not political in nature, one of the, the implications of that is by being persuasive, you're making that information available to the community to, to persuade their own elected representatives or proposed elected representatives. And that's what we see happening. So I, I don't just make recommendations, I track them and I report on them. Mm. And that's also, and agencies, governments see that. So they know that when an ombudsman produces a report, it's not going to just gather dust. Mm. Here are these recommendations, which I can then ignore. Mm. Mm. Well, it's up to them whether they accept them or not and implement them or not. But I am going to report on that. And they know, because I've now done this several times, uh, (laughs) that I'm going to be reporting on it and I'll be doing so again. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so in 2021... um, you, you talk about one of those. You talk about reports that um, governments don't necessarily um, want to have, and so you you undertook an investigation into the treatment of people in public housing. That was actually um, twenty twenty. I know, I know oh, the last two God. years are a complete blur, <laughs> but it was actually in, in the twenty twenty lockdown oh. uh, that I um, investigated the. Uh, Lockdown of the public housing towers. That's incredible. Um, yes, in 2020. Thank you. Um, uh, so, what did you what did you find in uh, about the government's conduct? And and you talked about the implementation of the recommendations. What is what's been their response to those recommendations? Well, we cast our minds back, and 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 I think for everybody, these last two years have been a blur. So it's not surprising that they, the years have merged into each other. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the, I think we all remember that moment in July 2020 when we saw those incredibly distressing images of people in the high-rise towers who were effectively locked down with no notice Mm. 
and the first many of them knew about it was their homes being surrounded by police. So it was very, very scary. And, you know, this is a, you know, these were towers that, you know, predominantly um, housing refugees, uh, people who've come from war-torn countries, for, you know, for whom this was deeply traumatic and, 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 and re-traumatizing. Yeah. So it was, um, it was something that I, I chose to investigate and put out my report in December of, of, of 2020. And what I found essentially is that the the immediacy of the lockdown I found was contrary to law. Mm. Uh, you know, in, in my view, it did it was not recommended on public health advice. Mm. The lockdown itself, yes, but not straight away. And what we found in that investigation was that we had the public health officials who had who agreed that it needed to be locked down, who were expecting that. It would happen the next day, and then found themselves, as the the, the acting chief health officer told us in, in, in the investigation, uh, she was given fifteen minutes to sign a human rights assessment. You know, the shortest time she'd ever had, and, and it was, and it troubled her immensely. Mm. So there was information that, that we weren't able to get access to. So you know, we don't know what happened at the cabinet meeting that day, but I think we can draw certain conclusions from what we do know mm. uh, and what was announced, mm. that um, somewhere in the course of the day, the expectation went from this was going to happen tomorrow to this is, this is happening now. Yeah. Um, question, question without notice, um, <laughs> um, Deborah. Um, does, what does that tell you, also what does that tell you about the, the, the ability of the charter to, um, constrain decision making at those crucial points where um, possibly human rights are most crucially needing to be observed, but at most risk of being breached. Well, that, that is exactly what it, it, it demonstrated. That this was the time when the charter should have been used, and it wasn't. Mm. And that's why. That's fundamentally why I found that, in my view. It was contrary to law because it was contrary to the charter. Mm. If the charter had been used as it should have been, mm. that human rights assessment would have been made quite differently. Mm. And it seems to me that you know that that, that, it, that it would have been thought through. What are the consequences? Does this need to happen on public health grounds? Well, no, not immediately. Therefore, consider people's right to uh, to be treated with with dignity when 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 deprived of liberty, because that's mm. what was going on here. Yeah. You know, these people, three thousand people, were deprived of liberty. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, why weren't they able to go and get their supplies, to get their you know to get their medications, to get their nappies? to get the foods they needed, like mm. everybody else was when they were being locked down. Nobody else in Victoria before or since has been locked down with no notice whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it highlights to me um, how structural disadvantage um, can kind of put you at risk of human rights breaches and, 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 and an over. Certainly not your responsibility as the person who's structurally disadvantaged, but it does highlight the, to me that... You may not see this in um, other high-rise buildings that are maybe less densely populated. I, I believe I said so at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I made that observation yeah. in my report. Yeah. Uh, but 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 to, to continue your question about mm. what it said about human rights, mm. actually there there is a a silver lining to this because we saw 
something very similar happened a year later in 2021, mm. in about in July 2021, almost a year to the day, when there was a further outbreak of COVID in the towers. And what we saw a year later was very different. So mm. we saw a very different response. And what that says to me is the government can do this properly if, if they think about it, yeah. if they think about the human rights implications, if they consider this, uh, if they make it clear that this is a public health issue, not a security operation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so that, that kind of goes to the point in terms of the response. So maybe I know you were quite forthright in wanting a an apology um, uh um, well, and certainly I'm sure the people in the housing towers would want an apology. That apology hasn't been forthcoming, but what has been forthcoming is a, is a change in behaviour. Exactly. Yeah. So, absolutely, the apology is one of the very few recommendations I have made in the last eight years that mm-hmm. has not been accepted, and I mean very few. Uh, but what, in other ways, uh, actions speak louder than words. Yeah. And, and what we saw... They didn't apologise, but they didn't do the same thing again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that ultimately matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, if it was the inverse, an apology and it was repeated, um, that would be unforgivable. Um, so I've, I've often seen, and I think you know, we've touched on parts of that there. Um, uh, that's maybe an example of really time pressured um, decisions resulting in human rights breaches or or poor administration, um, but. You know, you would have seen lots of other examples, and you've seen those within prison settings, where kind of bureaucratic logics and institutional pressures can undermine human rights that we've spoken about, good governance and, and proper public administration. I guess uh, a lot of the recommendations you would make would be systems-focused, um, and a lot of the discourse that we have, um, certainly I work in mental health and we talk a lot about the mental health system, is systems focused. I wonder from your experience what you think are the lessons for individuals working in the public sector. So what's the, what, what are the lessons from your work about if I'm, you know, a decision maker or I'm, uh, you know, a more junior staff member informing a decision maker, what do I need to learn from, from your reports? It's actually not difficult. At the heart of every decision is a person or at least one person. If we keep that person and that person's rights in mind when we're making decisions, you will make a better decision. Yeah. It's, it, 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 is, it needs to be no more complicated than that. Yeah. And what we see time and time again, and this is what the Human Rights Charter gives us, mm. it gives us a framework mm. for balancing rights to make good decisions. Yeah. So there, there are numerous instances, for example, where, and let's you know, move away from COVID for a moment, uh, we... Um, we deal with complaints from, uh, let me give you an example of a complaint from, from, from somebody who, who complained about their local council not allowing him to speak at council meetings, you mm. know, because he felt his, his right to be infringed, you know, his right to participate in public life. Mm. And that, you know, that is a human right. Mm. But he was also being very disruptive, mm. you know, and he was, and what, what, what the council was doing was limiting his rights because of, Behaviour towards councillors, uh, you know, towards you know. So the, you know, there are other rights here. There, yeah. there, there are people who who are being affected by by somebody's participation in public life, and there are and there are people who feel threatened by it. Mm. So that's a typical example of the balancing of rights. And, yeah. and we you know we we so when we get a complaint from an individual, my rights are being infringed here. 
you look at the balancing act, yeah. and councils don't always get this right, but in, in, in several cases we have looked at, they did. You know, they, yeah. they considered this person's rights, they balanced those rights against other rights, and they limited that person's rights, but not totally. So, for example, there was still the, the ability for that person to communicate with the council, and also it was time-limited. So mm. they said, we'll review this in a year's time. Yeah, and I mean, so the, the implicit part of the charter is proportionality. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is, you know, so for again, what, you know, what we would expect mm. is that public servants as up and down the state would be going, thank you, Charter, for yeah. giving me this wonderful tool to assess, you know, to, to balance the rights of somebody who's complaining to me or wants something done against other rights that they, that may also be being infringed. Yeah, oh, it, it absolutely makes for better public policy. And, and one of, um, I, I use the Charter a lot in the, in the mental health space that I work in, and I think one of the benefits of the Charter as opposed to maybe the really kind of constitutionalized approach that they have in the US is the balancing approach where in, in the US it'll be a very binary yeah. black or white mm. approach around free speech, gun rights, mm. whatever you want. Um, and it's about recognizing one right and then you don't recognize the other. With our approach, um, it's more pluralistic that it's about, well, how do we, um, how do we balance these competing interests on a situation-by-situation basis? And that's the way it ought to be. We have a long way to go to embed that kind of thinking mm. across decision-making mm. in, the, in the public sector. And all too often, and what we see, and we saw this in the casebook I put out on human rights, I think it was last year, I've actually made, maybe the year before. <laughs> I've lost track of the years as well. Uh, but um, the, um, the, the, the way human rights can affect us at, at every yeah. level. Yeah. And what we tend to see, you know, we, you know, when we report on human rights breaches, for example, they're rarely the kind of deliberate, you know, you have, you have breached my rights uh, kind of thing that we, you, know, you might see in, in, in... Or in order. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's more that, that somebody just didn't... It's the oversight. Somebody just didn't think. Somebody wasn't yeah. thinking that there was a person at the heart of this mm. matter who's... Who matters? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I guess one of the examples or one of the frameworks that's asking us to, um, in addition to the Charter, um, is uh, the optional protocol on the Convention Against Torture. I can't remember the other bit, um, and other cruel and inhuman and degrading treatment. That's it. So, yeah, I got it. Okay, cool. Um, so OPCAT, for, for short, um, it's, a, I guess, a, a mechanism to, to provide oversight and prevent torture in enclosed uh, closed settings, where are we at here? And so there's been we've signed that treaty um, as as a, an Australian government, but it's up to the state governments to implement that um, in different jurisdictions. So where are we at here in Victoria? Well, I wish I knew. Um, <laughs> I mean, OPCAT is incredibly important, and you know, for, for any of your listeners who aren't completely familiar with the the terminology, it's it's a very unusual United Nations treaty that is, uh, that is incredibly practical because what it does is requires the signatories to the treaty mm. to implement an inspection regime mm. that, um, that basically opens up closed environments to independent scrutiny. And that's, you know, as, as is often said, it's about shining a light in dark places. Yeah. And when we do that, we actually are in a position to prevent bad things happening. So it's not about investigating the terrible things that can go on after the event. Mm. It's about having that light 
shining so that you, the independent inspector can go, hmm, you know, that practice, not a good idea. That could result in this, this, and this, and maybe, you know, you should think about not using yeah, yeah. the spit hoods in yeah. youth detention, for example. You know, exactly. just to yeah. take an example that, that may be apparent to many. Yeah. So, it's, um, so it does require... It is, it's complicated for Australia, but it's mm. not that complicated because of our, our federal-state um, yeah. divide. But it's not that complicated, and we should have been able to do this years ago. Yeah. So, you know, frankly, I think it is shameful yeah. that we are so slow in our implementation of OPCAT. Yeah. Well, I mean, right now we know people are in prison. We know people are in mental health hospitals. We know they're in uh, aged care, which is more of a federal um, federal issue. But we just know that the treatment people are experiencing, uh, um, well, it makes me sad just to think about it. The, the experiences that they're having right now are horrific. And we've got a really practical mechanism Um that won't solve all issues? Um, no, it, it, yeah. it won't. And, and that's why I, I have, as Ogdensburg, been investigating, exactly. even though I'm, I'm not designated, because nobody in Victoria is designated to do this work, mm. and I'm not resourced to do this work either, but I do have the jurisdiction and I do have the power. Mm. So what I have done now twice is, um, is do OPCAT-compliant inspections mm. of different facilities within Victoria and report on that. Could you tell me about um, whichever of those um, you did? Well, the first one was the women's prison, Dame Phyllis Frost, and uh, I put out that report in, gosh, I lost track of time, 2017, I believe. Uh, and what, and I encourage any of your listeners who are not familiar to, to look at that report. It's on our website, widely available. And it does two things. It, it does some policy scanning of the landscape in Victoria to show how many closed environments we have mm-hmm. and who currently has jurisdiction over them and, and, and just does a, you know, a, a, bit of a, a bit of a think piece about what that might look like mm-hmm. under OPCAT. But, but more particularly, we actually went into the prison with a team. We, um, we, we did a lot of homework on this for, to, to do this properly. So we, we um, had the – New Zealand has had this function for – a decade, so we, we brought out the inspector from New Zealand to lead the team. We engaged with Her Majesty Inspector of uh, uh, Prisons in, in, in the UK, who've been doing this also for decades, mm-hmm. to, to really make sure we drew on best practice from around the world yeah. in looking at the standards in a women's prison. Yeah. And we spent, I forgot how many days now, because it's been a while since I looked at the report, but you know, mm-hmm. but we, you know, we, we talked to the prisoners, yeah. we surveyed people, we talked to the staff, because it's not, you know, it is about learning and improvement. It's not about, you know, coming out with an ombudsman slams. No. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it was, um, it was a pretty compelling and interesting, um, piece of work. We, we found, I mean, one of the things that I, 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 that, that did make the headlines at the time when I put this report out was um, the finding around strip searching yeah. of, of women prisoners, which was done routinely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as I observed, considering the number of women in prison who have experienced sexual trauma and abuse, to be strip searched routinely uh, in, before and after contact visits yeah, it's, is um, re-traumatizing. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, you did a more recent one. And <laughs> now I'm getting my years mixed up again. 2020 uh, or 2021? Uh, I think it was before. The, I think it was 2019. Okay, but right. again, yeah. I, 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 we've all it, yeah. we're forgiven. The, li- the listeners will forgive us. It was before. Yeah. It was before COVID. Okay. Right. Uh, so uh, BC. Okay. <laughs> so the the uh, the second opcat report I did was a thematic inspection of solitary confinement of children and young people. Yeah. And because it was thematic, we looked at three different facilities, a secure welfare services, youth justice, and an adult prison. Mm-hmm. So we looked to see how, how young people were treated in each of those environments yeah. for similar kinds of behaviour. And it was, um, it, it's not going to surprise anybody that the, the worst of these was the adult prison. Yeah. I mean, it was really quite shocking. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and and um, for those who haven't had a chance, we'll obviously put all of this in the in the show notes and um, in our social media links to this. But um, if you have time and the emotional space, it's it's worthwhile reading through that. Um, I'm sure improvements have come from what you did in those reports, but it would be fair to say some of those practices would still be continuing. I imagine too. Yeah, I imagine so as well. And so. So you've done, I mean, I think we've, we've highlighted, I mean, again, the, the depth, but then horizontally, just how much, uh, how many, how many different areas you have to operate within. Um, and yet the, the space is still changing. So, you know, we've got these questions around, um, digital platform governance, um, online misinformation, the, the outsourcing of public you know, public responsibilities to private organisations and uh, climate change, we're seeing that, uh, you know, flare up, certainly in the northern states, but I don't think we're going to escape that down here. Um, so there's still challenges for current and future governments, and, and, and this kind of, I imagine, might create changes for what you need to do in this space or what you need to respond to. So, I mean, what do you see as the emerging kind of role for, for the ombudsman um, with those and other changes that are that are underway now, let me put that question into perspective. The Ombudsman as an institution has been around for hundreds of years. In Victoria, nearly fifty years, and an awful lot has changed in that time. Sure. So, if there is an institution that I think is has demonstrated its ability to adapt to the modern world. I would say the Ombudsman is right up there. Yeah. So I think what that says is that the whatever governments uh, throw at us and there will always be <laughs> something, we need to stay relevant. Mm. It's a word I use to my staff all the time, you know, mm. the R word, we need to be relevant. <laughs> what do we need to do to be relevant? So within my office, and all Ombudsmen are conscious of that. Yeah. If we lose relevance then you, you, you won't completely die as an entity because the ombudsman will exist in statute, yeah. but you, you'll, you'll cease to have any importance for the people who, who need your services and eventually you'll, you'll you know, lose your funding and you may as well go home, yeah. give up and go home, which is never going to happen as far as I'm concerned and I hope any of my successors. Mm. So, it, it's, uh, so how we stay relevant is a challenge for ombudsmen everywhere. And we, we discuss these things, you know, we, we, we meet uh, as ombudsmen periodically, we discuss that some of these challenges are 
are, are national, some of them are international, mm. some of them are, are, are much more local. Mm. But, um, but we talk about trends and how we deal with them and what we need to do as ombudsmen to ensure that we stay relevant. Yeah. So digital, for example, there are so many strands to that. Uh, it could be artificial intelligence. It could be in, uh, decision-making. Mm. And those things will have relevance for an ombudsman because we look at decision-making all the time. So the extent to which you know, you know, robo-debt is an obvious example, which the common ombudsman looked at. And, and we covered in this podcast yeah. with Terry Carney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Will that manifest itself in some manner or, or, or form in Victoria? Probably, yeah. but I hope we'll be onto it, yeah. and I hope whatever we do will will reduce the chances of those kinds mm. of things happening here. Mm. So, I can't predict what the next fifty years. I can't predict the next two years is going to be. I couldn't <laughs> predict the last two years. But what I I do feel really strongly about is that an ombudsman needs to be sufficiently agile and sufficiently plugged in to what's happening yeah the world yeah. the you know the society uh, what's around to, to make sure that we can stay relevant well yeah and i think the housing investigation is a good example of that to be honest um uh, I know lots of people in the space, and I know you got that investigation up pretty quickly. Um, Very quickly. Yeah. Well, I could never have predicted that my two biggest investigations in the last few years would have involved the hard lockdown of 3,000 people in public housing towers or the closure of the state's borders. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. there we are. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think that's being responsive to, to the environment that you're in. Um, so I think we've, what we've covered um, today is... Um, you know, I guess why regulation matters um, to Victorians and, and good public administration by extension of that. Um, and then uh, the, the, impli- the, the role that human rights play in, in your role, um, but then also in the public sector. We've, we've kind of given examples of that, the housing um, lockdown. We've spoken about um, prison settings, youth detention settings, um, and I guess how bureaucratic logics can um, undermine that, but how you try to shine a light on it. Um, we've also spoken about OPCAT and that uh, none of the two of us in this room know where that's at and, and certainly hope for some clarity into the future. And part of that future is going to, is a bit unknown, but you're going to aim to be responsive to that. So you've, you've really unpacked what you're doing. What's one thing you want the, the listeners to go away and do today after hearing you? I'd like them to look at my human rights casebook, which illustrates how in both large and small ways human rights matters to decision-makers and to the public. Fantastic. And and we'll put a link to that um, in the podcast episode as well. Thank you so much, Deborah. My pleasure.